There comes a day when automation and technology takes more jobs away from the economy than the economy creates jobs. Right now, we're still creating more jobs than automation is taking away, but it's, it's a math. It's, it's math, right? It's how many jobs are lost and how many jobs are created. Automation is taking jobs away and people's innovation, people's desire to make a living keeps them finding work and something to do. But the trend line shows us we have a limited amount of time before we start shrinking. The, the economy spontaneously shrink is what I, what I would say it is. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Economies rise and fall, governments, corporations, they rise and fall. This is the natural cycle of things that grow, reach a peak, and then collapse. Does that need to be the case? Today, we've got someone super interesting on the program, Charles Jensen. He's an inventor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author. He served as the president of Euromed from 2004 to 2009. He's got nine patents, dozens more that are in the process of being processed, and $500 million in medical retail device sales to date. He's also the author of Optimizing America, where he applies out-of-the-box thinking to America's economy. In the book about looking at the problems behind the American economy, driven primarily behind debt and banking, and how we can engineer our way into a better, more sustainable, and more stable economic and political future. Today, we'll discuss the big problem with the Fed-controlled interest rates and what it does to the economy, how we can easily incentivize solutions to climate change while also increasing the cost of pollution, why debt-based banking is so bad and darn damaging and unsustainable for our future, why the U.S. wins with today's terrible economic system, how banks create a self-destructing model where they always win, how automation will affect jobs, what Jarl thinks about the future of healthcare, and much, much more. Before we jump into today's episode, if you guys haven't already, consider supporting The Disruptors. You can do that in one of two ways. First, just leave a review on Apple Podcast or iTunes. This is the this is the big gorilla when it comes to podcasting, and we need your support to reach more listeners and help grow the grow the audience and hopefully grow the the impact we're able to make on the world. If you just go to disruptors.fm slash iTunes, you can go there, leave a review. It's a little clanky, but it's incredibly important. And it's the only thing Apple really tells us about how to rank higher and get more podcast listeners. So I'd greatly appreciate it. And if you're able to support us economically, that would be incredibly helpful. If you go to disruptors.fm slash Patreon, you can find our Patreon page. We're on there. We've got a handful of supporters now, but we really need to grow this to make this a more sustainable thing long-term. If you go there, Support us at a level of $5 or more per month. You'll unlock bonus episodes and in the future, if we need it, ad-free episodes as well. And I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this and now say again, without further ado, I give you Jarl Jensen. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors. We're big on health and biotech. For a reason, it amplifies everything. Disruptors.fm slash qualia. Use coupon code disruptors. And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You've got a really interesting background. The, the biotech engineer who decides to change the world and rewrite the economy. Can I get a quick 30,000-foot view of you and your story? Well, my story, my first patent, uh, the first patent I was named on, I was, uh, I think, about uh, 18 years old, just finishing up high school. And I was driving with my, my dad, who was uh, trying to solve this problem for a uh, wound care dressing. And uh, through a conversation, uh, we, um, I, I helped him uh, come up with this design that turned out to be a very important patent for a launching of uh, Euromed, a wound care uh, product, which became a very big part of my life as uh, that company evolved into uh, a company I recently sold about uh, two years ago now for a great 
great multiple uh, for a privately held company. But before that, when I was young, my father was an inventor as well. We would play something called the invention game uh, where he would find different uh, objects and we would sort of compete to come up with the best or the most ideas for how to use that object in perhaps a different way than what it was designed for. And so I've always had this, um, I guess, a, uh, aspiration towards working with ideas. And, and that's what I do. Right now, I've started a company called Inventagon. I have several startups related to that business working on ideas or helping folks bring their ideas to market, uh, specifically medical device, because uh, uh, I have about, uh, I'm actually, I just looked at it yesterday, I have more than 20 patents. Uh, I think it's 23 that I'm named on or the primary name uh, person named on it. Uh, they're mostly related to uh, wound care and uh, medical devices. And um, so ideas are my thing. And uh, so recently I also released my uh, first book and uh, a couple of more, a uh, couple of other booklets uh, that are available on Amazon. And uh, based on an idea I had about how the economy should work, uh, a lot of people talk about the Star Trek economy, the next phase of the economy. And basically, from an engineering perspective, from an innovative perspective, uh, it isn't that hard once you get into how the economy works and why all economists don't agree because economics is not a science. And within that, as an engineer, you quickly see that there is obviously a system behind everything and the, econ the economy that we live with today is highly dysfunctional, as we probably all know. It's not just about income disparity. It is about where money comes from, what creates money flows, and then the trickle-down effect that has on all of us and how it limits our potential, it limits our growth, it limits our ability to live good lives. And uh, my book explains sort of what we need to do to take our economy, our lives, and our future into our own hands and make this a much better world. I think a big part of the problem, and we'll dive into this primarily in a little bit, but a big part of the problem is the, the driving force of the metric is GDP. And GDP only really works if things are constantly growing, which the only thing that constantly grows is cancer in the universe that we know of. And that's, prob that's problematic. I think, I think you're right. I mean, certainly the government should be interested in how well we're living, uh, how well our um, the cost of living, what is that? The average income, is it growing? Is it growing fast enough? Now they are interested in that. But if you notice that they have outsourced growth income, uh, GDP growth, and so on to something called the Federal Reserve, which is not actually part of the federal government. It Most is, people don't realize that. It's crazy. I know. And, and it is crazy. And what's more crazy is that Commercial banks own this corporation called the Federal Reserve, and that concept for running economies has been exported around the world at an agreement back in 1944 called the Bretton Woods Agreement, where 44 countries signed up uh, to have the American dollar and commercial banks run central banks around the world, and uh, it's created this global economic cartel, basically, if you think about it commercial banks are controlling our currency. And this means that uh, because they're all sort of interrelated with their own currencies, that, and at this Bretton Woods Agreement, which was just prior to the completion of uh, World War II, 44 countries signed up to have the American dollar be the currency of international trade and the uh, reserve currency of all these other 44 countries. That was what made and keeps America's dominance in place is this international agreement as uh, keeping the American dollar as the top dog of all currencies. It's funny. It's a, it's a fortunate coincidence. I was listening to a podcast earlier at the gym by, uh, by Planet Money on the Fed Independence Day, so to speak. And it was looking at the origin of the Fed being separated from the US government. And while it seems inherently bad, there's also inherent benefits to that as well. So the, the president of the time, Lyndon B. Johnson, essentially, if you look at how the presidents are incentivized, they want to keep interest rates really low because that means the economy is booming, but people are focused on short term and not the longer term. But whereas you've got to have something separate to be able to have that disparity to not just care about get, getting reelected. But I want to I wanna transition to a, a, a more important question. 
Why did you get involved in the economy? I know you said your dad was very successful. I've listened to some of your past interviews. He had a bunch of houses, but didn't do great with money. Was that the deal? What was it that drew you here? Well, you know, when I honestly, it's my, you know, when my kids were born, uh, they're now nine and 11. And you look at the, um, the coming and ongoing onslaught on, on people's lives from automation and so-called progress. It just isn't looking very pretty to me. Uh, inter- national, international, personal, and corporate debt is exploding, all for the purpose of keeping some kind of growth continuing. And it, 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 isn't, it isn't sustainable. I, I wrote a, a blog post where if you just take the um, trend lines for debt, you take the trend line for GDP growth, you're basically seeing that by uh, 2060, 50 to 60, automation has taken so many jobs out that Basically, even continuing to grow, net, you know, global debt at the current pace, uh, GDP will start to shrink. In other words, think about it. There comes a day when automation and technology takes more jobs away from the economy than the economy creates jobs. Right now, we're st- still creating more jobs than automation is taking away, but it's it's a math. It's it's math, right? It's how many jobs are lost and how many jobs are created. Automation is taking jobs away, and people's innovation, people's desire to make a living keeps them finding work and something to do. But the trend line shows us we have a limited num- amount of time before we start shrinking. The, the economy spontaneously shrink is what I, what I would say it is. Now, if you looked at, um, I believe it's 2009, that was the first year in, I don't know, 100 years or something where the GDP actually shrank significantly globally. I think the next time we see, and it, you know, we all know how long it took for us to have a, 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 a significant recovery to, to where we are today. And even today, there are a lot of people are still hurting from what happened 10, 12 years ago. Basically, we don't have a long-term sustainable system because people are focused more on growth than they are on actual prosperity and value and progress. Yeah, right. And, and um, we're going to have to do, uh, change something about how our economy fundamentally work in order for us to you know, go to the next level. I mean, there's so many things that we can't address, right? We can't really address climate change because if we shut down our, the amount of fuel that we're currently using uh, to power our world, it's not going to work, right? We need a different way for the economy to work in order to really solve that problem. Do we need a, do we need a collapse to be able to move to a different system? Well, Maybe for people to finally say enough is enough, maybe. Hopefully not. I mean, I, I do think that the big, the big event is coming. Uh, and eventually, we'll just, it's going to be a total reset. But the last thing we want to do is have a total reset of the same system. We still need to understand what's wrong with this system so we can move past it. I think a big part of the problem is looking at stock price versus dividends. I, I recently had Douglas Rushkoff on the program. He's a prolific author. But a big part of the problem that he sees in the stock market is the fact that these companies have to keep investing at growth at all costs because that's what drives the stock value up because investors aren't focused on actual sustainable cash flowing businesses, i.e. dividends. They're focused on capital returns because uh, uh, capital gains because the tax structure is different. If we flipped capital gains and dividends in terms of how they were taxed, that would change everything in terms of how companies were incentivized. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I sort of see the stock market as a different problem. It's, uh, you know, it, what it does is, or what it has done, is created a bunch of billionaire paper tigers, right? Jeff Bezos seems like the richest man in the world and Bill Gates and, and so on. But the truth is, it's all in these stock market assets that are highly inflated. And if you look at or compare to uh, to somebody in the past before you had this massive amount of debt out there and a massive amount of, uh, of uh, m- money printing for the services of debt. If you look at somebody like Cornelius Vanderbilt, who lived or who had his peak wealth at around 1850, so almost uh, 170 years ago, his money in the bank was $200 million at that time. In today's uh, money, that's about $200 billion. And Cornelius Vanderbilt built his wealth by selling uh, tickets for his trains, tickets to his uh, ferries from Manhattan to uh, uh, Staten Island and, and other services that he provided. Yes, he was a ruthless competitor. He put his competition out of business. But hey, it's business, as they say. But there was only 20 million people 
in America at the time. So think about extracting $200 billion in today's dollars out of 20 million Americans today. That seems like a preposterous proposal, right? Like impossible. Uh, but here we have Jeff Bezos servicing the whole world with this unbelievable, get anything you want from the click of a few buttons, and he's delivering it to your front door, and his value is half of Cornelius Vanderbilt, and Jeff Bezos basically has, I don't know, a couple of billion customers, and Vanderbilt only had 20 million. How do we, how do we understand what is going on with our economy where our richest guy, who probably serves more people with more you know, deliveries than anybody in history, uh, you know, th probably a thousand times more than Cornelius Vanderbilt. But here he is having half the value uh, that Jeff Bezos has half the value of Cornelius Vanderbilt. I'll put it in another way. If Cornelius Vanderbilt was serving 300 million people, right, you'd have to, you have to multiply his 200 billion uh, net worth by 10, at least, and get $2 trillion in today's, you know, value. Is it pricing democracy bringing pricing down to the masses? No. I believe that when Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, sold a ticket for his train for a dollar, he put 50 cents in his pocket. When uh, Jeff Bezos ships a product for $7, he gets 49 cents and the company still owes money. So he's paying off debt. So by the time he gets paid, he's just getting a salary. So the money he actually has in the bank is probably a billion or two. And the rest is all stock, which is paper money. It's, it, it doesn't even exist. His stock can collapse tomorrow and he'd have, you know, one tenth or, or one one hundredth of his, his net worth left where Cornelius Vanderbilt actually had money in the bank, all of it. <laughs> in other words, he didn't have a stock to uh, sell and have uh, appreciate to, to wild amounts to determine his wealth, where that's what Jeff Bezos is relying on and, but, and all the others. But if money is a made up thing and stocks are a made up thing, is it just trading apples for oranges or is there a legitimate reason why that's problematic? There's a legitimate reason why it's problematic. And that is we are running a debt driven economy, right? So, and what do I mean by that? If, think about what a bank is. Think about the first bank that was created and it was created and it still exists today, like some kind of vampire for in 1450. Right? What? How many is that? Six hundred years old. This thing exists. And what is a bank? Like, imagine the, a community that was, you know, I don't know, a couple of thousand people in a small town somewhere, and they didn't have a bank, so they couldn't borrow money. So they lived their lives by earning and spending. Now, I don't think it was more than twenty or thirty years ago. Right? We would be saying, you know, the best thing to do is not to borrow money. Right. Well, that's probably back in the 80s, right, when interest rates were like 20 percent. So he definitely didn't want to borrow money back then. So what happened was everybody was earning and spending. Now, a bank comes in and says, you know what, I want to build this big safe. And everybody in the town, you put your money in my big safe and I'll keep it safe. But that wasn't the banker's plan at all. What he did was he took the town's money that was supposedly safe in the bank and he said, hey, wouldn't you like to borrow some money from me, the banker, so you can buy yourself a nice big house? And the guy goes, hey, why not? So I, so I just have to pay you every week or a month or whatever. So the first of a thousand people that lived in the town said, yeah, let me borrow some money. I will uh, build a house and uh, everybody in the, in the rest of the town will have to look at me with my nice big house and uh, be jealous. And uh, so that happened. The, uh, the person who borrowed it, he spent the money he borrowed and he got some you know, the other people in town, he paid them to help him build his nice, beautiful house. Boom, he's done. And guess what the banker noticed? The one bank in the town, in this case, because it's the first bank ever. Well, the bank noticed that he lent the money to somebody. He's got this contract, this obligation for the person who borrowed it to keep paying him, you know, every month, a, a principal and uh, an interest and so on for, you know, whatever, a couple of decades. And he goes, great. But guess what happened? The bank actually got the money he lent out put right back into the big safe vault. So now the banker goes, wow, I'm in a position to lend more money because I got all the money back already. So the second person in the town goes, ooh, look at that nice house. He got, how did you get that? Oh, I took a loan from the bank. So one by one, everyone in the town wound up borrowing money to big, build nice big houses. And all of a sudden, the, 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 uh, the businesses of uh, the community go, wow, what we were noticing a lot of people have more spending money so we're going to you know, expand our businesses. So 
but we need to borrow money to do that. So then all the businesses of the town started borrowing money from the bank. Now remember, it's, it was the community's money that they're borrowing and reborrowing over and over and over again, right? So all of a sudden, finally, maybe a year goes, two years goes by, I go, well, now we've got nice houses, we've got bigger businesses, and now, <clears throat> well, uh, well, actually what happens is you've borrowed the money and now you gotta pay it back, right? So initially there's more spending, but after everybody has borrowed and all the businesses have borrowed, the bank notices, oh, wait a minute, they all borrowed the money and spent it. And now people have to save money just to pay back the bank. So, oh my goodness, if people don't keep spending, people are not going to be able to borrow uh, to pay my, my debt payments back, right? So the bank was, said, oh, well, I better lower my interest rates so people borrow more money so that they can continue to pay back their loans. In other words, the economy becomes dependent on growth and sustainability from the banks continuing to lend money. We have slowly, the whole world has slowly become completely addicted and dependent on banks lending us money. Because if we don't continue to lend money, I mean, sorry, borrow money and borrow more money, the economy basically collapses. The banks fail to get their debts paid and the banks collapse. So that's basically what every single financial collapse we've had in history is from the banks running out of money from the people not being able to pay back their debts. Which is a major, major problem because there's a lot of debt building up. There's the US college debt. There's the bubble of potentially venture capital. There's the bubble of we've reached a, a new housing peak. We've already exceeded where we used to be on our last recession. We have a lot of potential. And then some. And, yeah, then, and, some. and then some. We've got a lot of potential curveballs coming our way. Right. So if you think about it, if you think about what the rat race is, right, you take out a mortgage and you spend 30 years running the rat race, paying off that mortgage, right? The rat race is really caused by the bankers. Greed. Let's talk about greed. That's what I wanted to ask you. So you don't think that people are inherently greedy. You think the system creates greed. Think about it. If you're earning and spending, right? So you earn and put, you know, $10 in savings and you spend $20 or whatever, right? Like, let's say you're, you're, you're saving. Now, when you're earning and, and, and spending, right, if you don't put 10 bucks away for savings, hey, you missed a savings payment for, for yourself, it's not a big deal, right? Now, if you are borrowing and spending, right, if you miss a mortgage payment, your life could potentially be turned upside down, right? So what happens is that the need to pay the mortgage, you know, means you can't save any money. Yeah. Well, it's in other words, you're not saving anymore. You're paying off debt. And the need to pay off debt is, you know, not life or death, but it's definitely disastrous if you don't make those mortgage payments. So instead of saving up money to buy a house and not having debt, the world lives in a way where you have to borrow money in order to buy a house. It's, I know I'm one of the lucky ones, but 99% of everybody else basically has to borrow money to pay for a house that is close enough to where they work, right? It's just, it's just how the system works. We are completely dependent on this banking system. Which is okay in the best of times, but in the worst of times, let's say the economy crashes and you bought your house, you might be like, shit, my house is worth two thirds of what it was when I bought it. But at the same time, you're still living in a house. It doesn't matter for you, but for someone who has two thirds the value of the house and still has to pay the payments as if it was the old value, they quickly go underwater, which is what we've seen. Well, they are underwater. If they yeah. sell it, as long as they make their mortgage payments, I, you know, they're just out of luck. But I, I always found this Ameri idea of an American dream sort of being distorted from reality because- It's an American really, sales dream. No, it, I think it's banker's dream is what it is, right? The American economy is, is dependent on mortgages from banks in order to grow, it means every single house out there has a mortgage on it. That's the that's the banker's dream. Because if you think about it, let's say you buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars and you sell it, you know, thirty years later and it's worth three hundred thousand dollars. You made you know two hundred thousand dollars, right? But what? So you sell your house now. You got three hundred thousand dollars. Are you? If you buy the house next door, well, that's worth the same. So if you're going to buy an equivalent house because you still need some place to live. You wind up with the same thing. You don't. You you don't have the two hundred thousand dollar extra. You just have a house, or so. But then, what you have to do in order to get, I don't know, value out of the growth in the asset value, you have to buy a lesser house or a, le a house in South America, or you know, in a house where or refinance it, which a lot of people do. Refund. Okay, but that's debt. Mm -hmm. 
debt's not free. You have to pay back debt. <laughs> and, and nobody's going to forgive debt. I, you know, uh, some people believe you we're going to have this reset of debt. Well, well, I mean, that basically means the complete destruction of the banking system as well. But my idea is to fix the banking system. We need to obviously, uh, as just conversation leads us to conclude, is that we need to make borrowing money much less attractive. Well, and there's an easy way to do that, right? Uh, raise the interest rates. But we know what the problem with higher interest rates is. People stop borrowing money, which is what we want. But the economy needs us to borrow money or it stops functioning. Right? So how do we get the economy to function without our dependence on the banks? And you do that by starting to look at money flows, not from a banker's perspective who wants to, you, you know, who considers money their product, right? It's like, if you look at money flows from a perspective, what is best for society? What is best for the world? Then, in other words, instead of having banks run the Federal Reserve with a, the sole interest of the banking system in mind, we need to put people in the Federal Reserve separate from the government, as your earlier point was made, right? We don't want the politicians in charge of money. Definitely not. Agree with that. But scientists, engineers, uh, mathematicians, yes, uh, economics, economists, no, because the best I could call them really is mathematicians or statisticians. I mean, as statisticians, as mathematicians, economists would have value at the Federal Reserve. As long as they couldn't get a job at uh, one of the big banks after, which is what we see with too much with politics. Yeah. Um, but um, in other words, look, it, it isn't that difficult to come up with better ideas for how to run our economy once you move away from the single-minded, the single lever, right? Think about, think about intelligence, right? Intelligence, by definition, means that when you make a decision, you have more options in the future based on that decision. For example, the game of chess. When you make a move, the amount of moves that you can make on your next move determines how good that move was, right? So if you're playing and you make a move and your opponent makes a move and you're checkmate, well, that was a pretty dumb move, right? Because you have zero options after that move. Now, the Federal Reserve has left itself pretty much with one option. You can either raise interest rates or lower interest rates. That's it. And that's what we believe will guide us into a better future. It's what we believe will improve our standard of living. It's what we believe will, I don't know, uh, reduce the cost of, of uh, living in a house or the cost of food or uh, everything and every decision we do, we believe that the Fed only having one lever to control our world, that's all they need. And the only reason it's like that is because banks run and own the Federal Reserve, and it's there for the purpose of holding up in place the financial system. And, and there should be no bigger clue to us that this is the case than quantum easing, the buying of garbage from rich people, right? That's what it was. And that's what it is. I mean, I guess they're still doing it in some places around the world. They're literally buying junk debt because, well, they need to save the financial system. Yeah, the bailout. It's, it is helicopter money thrown out of, you know, in big buckets out of a helicopter. But they say, hold on, let's not just give that money to everybody. Let's just buy money from people who have money, right? They're basically taking their debt and saying, you can have cash instead. And we'll take that piece of junk, uh, you know bond or mortgage um whatever package thing. It's trading a dollar for 50 cents yeah whatever they, they, so they buy all this junk from rich people now, now there should be no no other event in the world and certainly that inspired my, me to look at this again than than quantum easing and it's continued to be looked upon as this you know wow we saved the economy but think about it. they they took 4.5 trillion dollars of printed money and just you know, put it out there for wealthy people to recover their losses, right? And, and that's $4.5 trillion. I know they bought some of it back, uh, but that $4.5 trillion continued to circulate as, as printed money out there in circulation that the banks then continued to lend and borrow and lend and borrow over and over and over again, right? And it is that hypocrisy right there that the common man, the working man, the middle class, should be in you know, a pulling their hair, hair out of uh, you know, out of their head, right? So 
millions of people were foreclosed upon and and trillions of dollars were spent buying back debt tr- junk debt from rich people right that that's what it was or take another uh, case where the whole banking system is primarily uh, geared to uh, enrich wealthy people take the AT&T merger with Time Warner now AT&T had 20 billion dollars in the bank uh, congratulations that's a ton of money but unfortunately the deal was 70 billion dollars a massive massive deal so I, I believe it was quarter two of 2000 and uh was it 18 i guess it was about yeah about a year ago uh but what where did that other 50 billion dollars come from so bank of america or merrill lynch i guess was actually handling the the merger right but they couldn't cover 50 billion that was too much for even the great bank of america so they could cover about uh, 25 billion now, so, so where did they get the other $25 billion? Well, they actually had to invite uh, J.P. Morgan. Jamie Dimon himself had to come in to sign this deal. Why would not? What's Jamie Dimon there? Why did he come in there? Because guess where Bank of America and Jamie Dimon got that $25 plus $25, $50 billion from? They got it direct from the New York Fed, like in a big you know, truck coming out of the Fed with $50 billion of freshly minted money. It didn't come from deposits from you know chase jp morgan or bank of america it came right from the fed and that's why jamie diamond was needed because they needed to print all that money fresh and put it out so when i look at the second quarter what was interesting about the second quarter of 2018 four point something gdp growth significant growth right pure inflation no i i i believe that actually i believe that that uh, at&t merger with time warner was think about all those time time warner uh, shareholders who got cash, new money, printed, fresh, minted money right from the Fed into their pockets instead of stocks. We're talking about $50 billion, well, there's there's 70 in total of money being given to these shareholders. And I mean, maybe some of them reinvested it, but a lot, I mean, it was a 25% premium over the the, the current stock price. I, I, I think of that GDP grew a lot from that one single deal. Because think about it, $50 $50 billion of new money entering the economy when the, the total money in circulation uh, from the Fed is uh, $1 trillion according to their balance sheet. But then again, where's that $4.5 trillion of, uh, of uh, quantitative easing money, right? That should be included in that, but it's, it's not. But according to them, they have $1 trillion of uh, money circulating. So if you're printing uh, $50 in order to make this merger happen, that's 5%. Guess what? The GDP grew by 4%. I think there's a connection. But maybe that's just me doing math. I don't know. I want to take a quick time out to tell you about today's show sponsor, Design Crowd. They're the company that we used to get our podcast cover art for the Disruptors and Fringe FM before we had to change the brand name. I've used them a bunch before in the past as well. How it works, you put up a project, be that a logo design, a brand cover art, podcast cover art, you name it. And designers around the world compete. You don't pay unless you're happy. And you know what? The best part, you get incredible results. Just look at the cover art we have. Look at that sexy thing. It looks like it's from the BBC or something, right? At least that was the thoughts I had when I had it. I hope you guys do as well. If you guys are interested in checking them out, supporting us by supporting them, go to disruptors.fm slash design crowd. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-W-D. Now let's get on with the program. It's a, it's a crazy rigged game. And that doesn't even really bring up the the U.S. debt situation, so the country's not in a good place, and then we're something like 10x leveraged on how much the U.S. actually owes in terms of pension plans and other things to to governmental employees. Yeah, well, well, if, I think one interesting because it's it's high in the news right now. I think um, our trade deficit with China just hit uh, almost a trillion dollars uh, in 2018 record. I think. Uh, it's it's a simple thing, but I think a lot of people should should look at that number. If if you have a job and you could have been manufacturing or whatever, and and you feel like China may be taking your job or whatever, what people have to understand about that deficit number is that China, when they get dollars, right, they're not sitting on those dollars because if they did, they would be depreciating, and um, you know they wouldn't be doing anything for them. So. Um, they would have to, if uh, nothing else, start buying American products with them. So it would be a virtuous... Because they can't bring the money into the country either uh, without a lot of difficulty. 
Well, well, the, my point is this, is that what's happening right now is China sending over products and we're sending over paper money and probably a lot of times electronic money, right? It's not even paper they're getting. They're getting, you know, data in, and they're sending us products, hard earned, I mean, hard labor, cheap labor uh, to make these products. And they're getting basically a digital data point uh, issued by the Federal Reserve nonetheless. And what are they doing with it? They're buying American debt, right? They're buying treasury bonds with it. and what that does is is that it allows them to make this um, trade deficit happen. If they weren't allowed, or if America wasn't running a debt, what would China have to do with American dollars? Well, primarily they would have to use that money to. I mean, they could trade that money, but eventually that money would wind up with somebody buying American products. So, if you're a working person and you're blaming China, no, you got to blame America for having a national debt because. If China and all the other countries around the world didn't have the option of buying our national debt, they would have to buy our products. And it's just such simple math. And and he, don't blame China. Blame our government for running up a debt. That's what you need to blame. We always like to blame the other guy, though. That's just part of its human nature and part of it just makes a better story. And that's a big part of the problem. Well, certainly in politics, blaming the other guy is is the uh, well, that, that is the epitome of politics, isn't it? It is, and it's usually a sign of politicians trying to st- stir up the excitement around a war. Hopefully, that's not in the cards. Hopefully not. Although he's sure t- using tough talk with uh, Venezuela right now and and Iran. I doubt I doubt anybody's going to war with Iran. Ever, anybody can talk a big game on Twitter. I think that's the problem with Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Well, we will we will see. What um I, I imagine you're a proponent of blockchain, just from what I can gather. Uh, no, I, I think uh, blockchain has uh, too many weaknesses to be useful. You can never say uh, evolution, but even the evolution of the technology seems to be not there, right? It's a 10-year-old technology at this point, I believe. Uh, so uh, I, I do believe in the idea of this alternative um, electronic um, uh, monetary system uh, that could be kind of like blockchain or Bitcoin designed differently. It would have to be designed differently to work properly. Certainly, I have, I have thoughts here. But you certainly could invent a, um, a, a sort of an electronic currency that is not uh, based on national banks or nation status, but maybe an international currency. And if it gained acceptability, it could be uh, totally revolutionary. But uh, I don't believe blockchain is the right technology. Do you consider yourself a libertarian? I don't. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't know who who your role model for a libertarian is, or what your definition necessarily is. But like, an, I do see um, like an Ayn Rand's point about uh, the producers and 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 the situation we're in now with the billionaires, both from the left and the right. Everybody's blaming the the, the Republicans tend to think that all the billionaires are Democrats, and and the Democrats want to tax the hell out of the billionaires, so. You know, I, 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 and I don't understand if the Republicans think all the billionaires are Democrats. Why would they mind us taxing them? They're Democrats anyway. It's just some of the 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 noise I'm hearing on online, I guess. But um, no, uh, so I, I, I do believe we obviously have to defend the producers. I mean, the billionaires to a degree, because you know, like it or not, they are responsible for the world's production or a large part of it. Although in America, I think 99% of all employment is from small businesses. So they're not that responsible for everything, right? We're pretty much a self-employed nation at this point through Uber and other alternative freelancing ways of making money and just very small businesses. That the idea that, um, you know, they say, you know, socialism is, uh, is sort of a collectively owned uh, production. But if we all own the production, if 99% of those employed are pretty much self-employed. Uh, isn't that self-production as well? Isn't that the workers owning in- employment in America? It kind of is. It's just a different way of looking at it. So the whole capitalism versus socialism versus libertarianism, uh, I think it's all part of the same game, honestly. It is a, we are, we are all, all of those systems, and libertarian doesn't really exist, but capitalism or socialism, it's all part of the same system. It is tax and spend. It is the only model we have, the only economic model we have, and socialism falls under that and capitalism falls under that. My word for it, the word I penned, is bankism. Socialism is bankism. Communism is bankism. 
capitalism is bankism. We all depend. Our economy is driven by when we borrow money and spend it. That's what we live in. We're living in a bankism world. What would you have us do if you had a magic wand? Well, take over the central banks, kick the bankers out, put in the engineers, put in the intelligent people who think about society, who think about the future of the planet, and start uh, uh, changing the way. We, uh, one interest rate for digging wells that produce more CO2. Variable interest rates. Variable interest rates creates a whole boom right there. You fix global warming with variable interest rates. So why the hell are we letting banks tell us that one interest rate for, all, for everything is the way to go? It's insane. We're, we're talking about the future of the world, and we're liking, liking, uh, letting banks determine what the interest rates on loans are. Think about it. Just set, you know, have two interest rates. We should, have, we should literally have everything have a minimum of 10 to 15% interest rate, probably 20%, really high interest rates for everything. And then you have caveats. Okay, renewables, negative interest rates. What happens with negative interest rates on renewables? Ooh, I think that becomes an incredible force of nature that changes the whole world in you know years instead of decades, right? Okay, so you can change the world incredibly fast with variable interest rates. Go on. No worries, no worries. So another another big part of the reason I wanted to get you on here is your background is biomedical patents IP and that's a that's a space that's advancing rapidly and changing. What do you see as the future of healthcare, not just in the U.S., which is a completely ruined system, but internationally? Well, I, I, yes. Well, uh, no. I think the international system is also ruined. It's just less ruined, or it is it costs less. The future of medicine is no medicine. The future of of health healthcare is the opposite of what we have. In fact, healthcare is an oxymoron when you look at our system. We have sick care. We don't have healthcare, right? We are not caring for our health. We are living in a uh, in a. We have lifestyles that makes us sick. We all know it. I would say modern day aging is not genetic aging. It is a consequence of lifestyle. You don't have to dig very deep into, um, or you know, I'm an engineer. If you stop looking at your, your our our bodies as um, biological systems that that are you know not really understandable, and start looking at it from an engineering engineerable system, you know there are things that we can do to extend our our, our lives significantly just by changing our lifestyles. And you know the FDA is geared towards issuing drugs. We we don't have a you know, we, there is no method for us to get healthy. The big gorilla in the room when we're talking about healthcare is that everybody's getting sick, right? And it, it, the big gorilla in the room that nobody's talking about or noticing is that the reason our America's healthcare costs are through the roof isn't just expensive uh, drugs and expensive hospital visits. It's the fact that we're going to the hospital all the time and we're getting chronically sick. Uh, and, and I mean, the percentages are scary. I mean, we, you know, which just leads us to the next conversation, the, the, you know, the canary in the coal mine, right? Uh, you know, we have our kids' autism rates are skyrocketing. If that's not a canary in the coal mine, I don't know what is. And depression. At the, well, I, name something. It's going up. I mean, it's, it's not getting better. I mean, they say we are defeating cancer and living longer with cancer. But, okay, you just went through chemo and you've got another five years after chemo. No, thanks. I mean, it's, you know, it's not going to be high quality of life once you've had chemo. Uh, and if that's the best we can do, the and, and and so we don't. The system is not preventative. It's clear that we have. There's more hope in 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 alternative solutions in preventative healthcare. If you want to reduce our costs, go there. Prevent these things from happening. It's a lot easier. It's a lot cheaper. Uh, and and the, the rate of which we're making uh, changes. I mean, I know my my wife now with her uh, Fitbit. You know the the. Um, the, in, our insurance policy gives her a dollar every day she does 10,000 steps. A dollar. And she's actually doing 10,000 steps to make a dollar. I mean, uh, so, so that, that's progress. But you know what? Exercise isn't the only thing we need to do. It's, it's a diet. It is the pollution. It is the... But if the, the thing about America and, and, and America's leading the world is it seems like we can't agree on anything. If, I mean, like when Bloomberg tried to um, ban big gulps from New York City, there was an uproar. But who, but he was right. I mean, if you're going to have 2,000 calories of sugar in one drink at one meal, that's not good for 
health of New York City, uh, the citizens of New York City. He was right, but our like, is it our freedoms? Our freedom to make ourselves sick? Uh, but we have this, you know, war on. We have- do we need a universe? Do we need a universal healthcare system so I can say to the guy next to me, "Screw you! You're not having your cigarette because it's going to cost me money." I think I think that could be part of it. It's also almost impossible to incentivize prevention for healthcare insurers because, for all they know, I might be over to a new insurer the next year. So, well, as long as he dies next year, it's not really my problem. Well, I, I think I think there are. Well, you can't cover everybody. I mean, there are people who just don't care, obviously. But but do we have to force it on them? That's kind of what you're saying. I I don't know. I I I I, I would more like to see more guidelines. You know, we have what this uh, dinner plate from uh, was it Michelle Obama who made the last uh, meal plan for the American citizen. These guidelines are are are, are not enough, and they're obviously con- they're consistently wrong as well. It is amazing. And is was it was it Michelle Obama's opinion that that's what the the plate of food that the average american should be eating it just seems to me that instead of spending all the money you know on researching for a drug that can make some company uh, billions shouldn't we be spending billions of money researching what will not make us have to buy that billion dollar drug does healthcare have to be non-profit then is that the problem the profit incentive i know the us is one of the few countries where you can advertise drugs on on tv uh, I, I don't think uh, the well. First of all, in terms of um, well, wh- where do we start? I, I mean, I do think the insurance companies can play a role, and so could Medicaid and, and, and Medicare. Uh, they can play a role in the sense that it has to be. And, and Obama tried to do with uh, with Obamacare, uh, the Affordable Health Care Plan, that it has to be about statistically getting the outcomes to be better so that if somebody goes to a hospital that they don't come back, right? You send them home healthy, you don't send them home just to come back later, doubling and tripling the cost. I mean, that's part of it, but it still seems to me that uh, the information that is available could allow us to prevent the majority of the things going wrong right now. And it just seems like it's just not, it's not part of the conversation. That is the biggest thing is that the conversation is about healthcare costs. It is not about why we're getting sick. Why isn't that a part of the conversation? No one's incentivized to fix that. Doctors are incentivized to treat more. Insurance companies are incentivized to cut costs. And people are too busy with their own lives to worry about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and so what can, when can you do? But from an economics perspective, certainly businesses that uh, prevent people from getting sick, if they were to get access to lower interest loans... Because from a society perspective, now we're talking. Yeah. So from a society perspective, what happens is, okay, they get these, you know, negative interest rate loans, but because they exist, they gather larger and larger groups of people who stay healthy, reducing the overall health or sick care burden of all of America. So from a societal perspective, these lower interest rate loans granted to these types of companies are good for society. And because they're getting negative interest rate loans, they can make it work easier. And then West competition sets in, as the future comes in, perhaps interest rates can be raised as maybe they don't need that money anymore. Maybe they start making a profit. Maybe they figure it out. But the concept of it, the birth of that industry or the growth of that industry can be propelled dramatically by getting the banks out of the Federal Reserve and letting us design a, a society that works. It's a it's a super interesting proposition. It's one that I haven't heard tossed around near enough, which is enough to give me pause and wonder why more people aren't talking about it. But it's definitely something. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, that is not the only uh, concept that, that I would uh, that I'm proposing for for the levers of controlling the economy. Another concept I have is uh, what I call direct deposits. And the purpose of direct deposits, so basically you would take uh, everybody's social security number and the Federal Reserve would turn those social security numbers into bank accounts, right? And so the Federal Reserve on a daily basis would put, you know, six bucks into that account, all right? And so a homeless person can go over with his social security number and that's it and say, my bank here, give me my six bucks and he can go spend it. He can go eat, perhaps he can pay for housing. And every single person would have that $6 in there. And it's up to them to go, you know, withdraw it and spend it. And, and so you can have different ideas of how that mechanism works. 
does uh, the second day, does the $6, if it's there, still there, do they get $12 or does it stay at $6? Uh, and you can argue either way. But that's not the point. The point is that it is a mechanism for controlling the economy, right? So now you have variable interest rates, which causes, allows us to design our future by creating low interest rate um, loans to the desired industries that propel us into a better future. What the uh, direct deposit does is, uh, as we start drawing back the reins of lending, right, stop becoming less dependent on loans, direct deposit allows us to lend money out, lend fewer dollars out. But as we lend fewer dollars out, the economy is supposed to slow down. What's holding the economy in place is the direct deposits. They offset less borrowing. It's like a micro universal basic income. Uh, it is. But remember, because it's coming from direct, directly from the Federal Reserve, it is not debt-based. The problem with... Is it inflation-based then? No, no, it is based on money's in circulation and the amount of money lent out on a daily basis, right? So if every day uh, the banks are lending out uh, probably close to, uh, you know, a trillion dollars, I'm, I'm not sure what that exact number is. That's hard to tell because there's, you know, hundreds of banks. But there is a certain average amount of dollars being lent out every single day. And that's sort of what's keeping the money machine going, right? But if you start saying, well, uh, interest rates are now 20%, you're going to need to offset that the, much less borrowing with new money coming into the system. Okay, so they'd be holding more and then they'd be putting out more of that, but not in the form of loans. And so, so what you do is all of a sudden now with variable interest rates, you, you control the future. With direct deposits, you control the economy, right? And all of a sudden, all the economists of the world are out of a job because the, the economy becomes predictable. The economy becomes engineerable, and all of a sudden, economics isn't a theoretical science. It is an engineerable science, and we can control our future. We can control our standard of living. We can get out of this mess we're in. <laughs> so basically, to, to see if I summarize, we have the variable interest rates, let's incentivize the good stuff and de-incentivize, or whatever the word is for that, the bad stuff. And then in terms of <laughs> stimulating the economy further, let's say things are going downhill, people aren't spending enough. Your $6 just became $15. By the way, you have to spend it all today. Otherwise, the money's gone. Potentially. Some, something similar? Yeah. I mean, but th there's a lot of variables on this, right? There's a lot of options. And what did I say about it? More choices. Yeah. Let's play chess. Choices. And it's more intelligent, right? That's what we want. And that's why we want engineers, scientists, smart people running the Federal Reserve, maximizing our options. Hey, it could be $6 is too much. Let's go to $2. Let's go to $1. I don't know. But certainly the data we get back from the economy will tell us where we need to be. It also will tell us where our baseline interest rates on loans should be. Should it be 20%? Should it be 10%? We also have to start looking at um, the reserves the commercial banks are, are holding in their banks. Because right now it's 3% uh, for small banks and 10% for the big banks, but 10%. So in other words, like I talked about the, the community bank, right? Every time you put your money or your paycheck goes into the bank and it sits there, it's not sitting there. The banks are lending money out over and over and over again. The only thing they're holding back is 10%. Now, if you made that 20%, again, that restrains the amount of money that banks are lending out. And that's what we want to do as a society. We want to get away from bankism. We don't want our world to be controlled by the banks. And we do that by taking control back of where money comes from, the Federal Reserve. And by the way, it is the Federal Reserve that sets the, um, the amount of money that the banks have to retain uh, of the deposits. So the Federal Reserve does control the entire banking system. And to clarify, they're trying their best to make things work, but they're trying their best to make things work in the system they currently have that they also win under. Yeah, the, the system that has failed multiple times and the way they save it is by bailing out the banks every single time, right? Uh, how about we start not have and think about that's another consequence of an engineering economy no more recessions right no more uh, stock market collapse i would say no more long-term recessions we probably would still have some no i mean i would think there would probably be some jitteriness uh, initially from a, from a from a transition into a a, a, a more advanced economy sure there's going to be investors that are going to be nervous but the economy has just been baseline, right? You cannot get below the uh, direct deposit amount. That direct deposit amount means that the, there's going to be money in people's pockets 
and they're going to continue to need to eat and live, right? So that, that baseline is now set. That means the economy is held up no matter what the stock market does, right? Secondly, uh, you know, we can start, I mean, another thing is uh, this outrageous concept uh, that um, the Federal Reserve uh, has that, you know, maximum employment or is uh, or, or full employment is, you know, 4%, 5%, right? That means, you know, 8, 10 million people are still unemployed. That's a large amount of money, I'm sorry, large amount of people that have to go around looking for work just so that the Fed doesn't have to fear inflation, right? If we don't have to, with an engineerable economy where we can just say, boom, let's raise that that interest rate on loans to 20%. Trust me, with 20% interest rates, right, we, we're not going to have inflation, right? We, we're going to have actually you know, significant deflation when it comes to, to, to housing and stock markets and overinflated assets. Uh, those are going to start becoming valued according to what they're actually worth, right? What you would actually want to buy them for, not because there's so much money in circulation that has to go somewhere that the stock and housing prices go up. Now, you have to understand as well, I know it's the American dream that the value of your house goes up, but the our cost of living goes up with it, right? So that means instead of having 10% of your paycheck go to, towards housing, today it's 30, 35, 40, 45% of your paycheck goes to pay off the mortgage, goes to pay off the rent. Is that really beneficial to our cost and, our, uh, and our, the quality of our lives? No, we want that to be shrinking, right? So the American dream is counterproductive because the American dream is swallowing up our whole paycheck. Right? Is that really good? No, I, I don't think that's good. We want to spend th- money on things. Uh, maybe spend it on solar panels instead. You know, <laughs> maybe that's a good idea. A low interest rate paid for uh, a solar panel. Anyway, once you take control of the economy because the economy is engineerable, we can create a much better world for everybody. Do you think this happens here first or somewhere else? In all likelihood. Well, you get you, you, when you talk about the deep state. You know, I don't like to get conspiracy theories, but Look, the, the Amer- America dominates the world because of the dollar, right? All the other countries around the world are using the dollar as a reserve currency, which allows the banks of America to lend out more money and boom our economy like no other country in the world. There's power in America's position. And my, my guess is that you know deep inside the CIA and deep inside the Pentagon, they want to maintain that power, that ability to, uh, you know, uh, isolate countries with trade uh, and uh, deflate the currencies of other countries. Uh, that it's, a, it's a powerful position for America to be in. But at the same time, you have to wonder if we're not going to lead the world with climate change, if we're not going to lead the world with rights and freedoms, then uh, maybe the other countries aren't going to continue to play along. I don't know. I know China is not playing along. They, they're playing a long game against America. So uh, the last thing we want to do as well, which is the problem with not engineering our economy, is that countries like China, they are engineering their economy and they it's are working. going and it's working and they are going to come calling for the trillions of dollars we owe them. And what exactly does America do with that? And think about it. When you have a debt, right? You have an obligation. You have a burden. You are, you are enslaved to, your, to the debt that you owe. So when China comes calling for its money and every single American citizen owes, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars of national debt. Personally, aren't we in some way going to be indentured to China and, and the debt that we owe them? Yeah, I, th- I think we are. And so people say, well, we'll just have the Federal Reserve print the money and just send it over to China. Okay, well, what do you think they're going to do with all that money when they so they're going to cash in? Uh, you're going to have massive deflation, and what can China do with massive deflation? Well, they go around buying whatever American property company they want, right? They they start picking apart the country. So, I, I mean, we're, we're in a lot of danger here. I, I don't see any place where our current path for America exists, but still it's like that drug that's hard to give up, right? And, and But America needs to do it if it wants to maintain its leadership and wants to, the people of the country to maintain their liberties and freedoms, which I think is still the strong part of, of America. There's the concept of debt, but then there's also the concept of me have big stick is that kind of what's happening here in terms of why the U.S. outspends the next 20 countries combined in military? You know, as I mentioned earlier in, in our talk here, um, the Bretton Woods Agreement, 44 countries signed up to me uh, as the reserve currency of international trade. It means that when other countries buy products from other countries, 
their currency is immediately dumped, and uh, uh, which devalues their currency. But when Americans buy other countries' currencies, it isn't dumped. In fact, it is saved and uh, used to buy treasury bonds from America, which basically upholds the value of the dollar, and it uh, allows Americans to buy trillions and trillions of dollars from other countries without feeling the impact of inflation. That's not the case for everybody else. They have to play by a different set of rules where when they buy things from other countries, it immediately affects the value of their currency. So that is an enviable position that America has that basically no other country has in the world. And that's why the position of, of you know, the reserve currency is maybe something uh, that banks are going to tout as a reason why American, America doesn't want to do, change anything. And it leads me to believe that maybe America isn't the first country to start engineering its economy to, uh, you know, to enter the future. And I believe the first country that does is going to be the model of the future, because what it means is, uh, think about it, if, if a country was offering a stable country like a Scandinavian country, which would be a very good place to start because they all still have their own currency, the kroner, the Danish kroner, and Swedish, I think they're all kroners, but. I'm not sure. Uh, but the Danish kroner, as an example, right, they, they can use the euro, but they also have their own kroner. And so what happens if Denmark says, well, our interest rates are not going to be 20%. What do you, I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have a savings account just to be half of that 10% in return on savings? So what does that mean for people in other countries? They go, a safe, stable economy like Denmark has savings accounts offering 10%. Those countries are going to want, or those people in other countries are going to say, I'm going to buy some kroners and put some kroners into a savings account and make 10%. It's a completely, you know, completely upend the whole, the whole, uh, model of how economies work and compete. Because now high interest rates means other countries are going to invest in that currency, put their money into savings account, which increases the value of the Danish kroner, which potentially gives them the ability to issue even more direct deposits. Now, it all hinges on this idea that we don't want the economy to be driven by debt, and which does put you know banks in a unenviable position of being less useful than they are today. Today, they are essential. When you engineer the economy, banks lose that role of, of essential uh, need. So uh, part of what you have to do in order to engineer the, the economy is to keep the functionality of the banks working. And uh, one way of doing that is obviously to reward banks for making the direct deposits, the social security number system workable and then having them be rewarded for managing it. And so you have to come up with different schemes of keeping the economy working much as it is today. You certainly still want to have uh, to, to make borrowing possible, but we just need to make it much less attractive. 20% is probably too high. Uh, 10% is probably feasible. But again, these are inputs into a system and with enough inputs, as I'm suggesting, we can control the system just like any machine, just like anything else in the universe. Our economy finally becomes and behaves scientifically. The only thing in the universe that isn't scientific, think about it, the only thing that isn't in scientific, and the only system in the universe that isn't scientific is the human economy. Go scratch your head around that one. Well, I've, I've answered the question of why it's not engineerable, but now that I've said why, you know, I'm hoping someone, somewhere, some country uh, gets going on it because certainly the people of that, that country are going to be empowered and uh, that economy is going to be empowered and uh, certainly will be the model for the future. There's huge risk, but potentially huge reward as well. It's, uh, it's a very well, interesting let me, system. Let me, let me argue back on the huge risk, right? Because you don't need to go at this with a sledgehammer like the Federal Reserve does today with interest rates. With multiple variables, like I'm, I'm proposing, you can tweak your way into it. You don't have to start at $6. You can start at $0.10, cents, right? And you don't have to start with 20% interest rates. You can just raise them a little bit, and you can offer lower interest rates on a small industry. Or just and you a can split test, and you can split test like Amazon is so famous for. Yeah, you can do all kinds of engineering things, solutions we already know about. All we need to do is get engineers to control our economy. That's what we need. I bet you a place like Estonia or Scandinavia or Singapore would be the first or or potentially China would be the first place to try something like this. China, because they can kind of say this is what's happening and do it. Yes. Uh, and I, I believe China 
is a smart country, and they're basically already doing it. They are just sort of playing along. But meanwhile, they are completely manipulating their currency. Think about it. They have got technologies in terms of transportation, uh, in terms of um, delivering currents, uh, cur- current electricity across their country from these super high-powered uh, voltage lines. We're not even anywhere near that. We're not even talking about that. They have high-speed rails. They've got the largest airports, the largest ports uh, for, for boats and so on of any country in the world. All mobile and they've payments. Been funded by their manipulation of their currency. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's interesting. And I don't think either of us are necessarily condoning what, a lot of what China does, but I think well, we're, I'm a, we're praising I'm the good China. stuff. I am afraid of China because we don't want their model of government taking over America. We don't want that because that sucks, right? There's no freedom of religion over there. There's no freedom of speech. All the rights and the values that we have as American, we can't have under that kind of a regime. So uh, China is to be feared. And, uh, but as long as they're manipulating their currencies and they are creating this massive growth through, through it, through engineering their economy, and we're just playing along this game of, of free markets and, and bankism, we don't stand a chance. We've got to wake up to the fact that it's the economy stupid. It isn't the politicians because they're not in control. It's the banks that are in control, and we need to fix that. And you have a book out about this. Tell me, before we get to that, one piece of advice for listeners, a call to action, what would it be and why? Well, uh, I have, I have uh, two books that one of them is free on Amazon. The other one is free on, um, they can download free from, from the internet. And then my third book, my big book, which is uh, my bestseller, uh, is, uh, is available in uh, paperback. It's called Optimizing America for very sort of engineering reasons. But my, uh, the e-version, book version, I call it Epiphany because it really is about an idea, once again. So I'm promoting it as, under the name uh, Epiphany as an e-book. Yeah, so, you know, go check that out. I have a lot of blogs on um, uh, Medium. A lot, a lot of blog posts on Medium that can read. My, I have a website called Optimizing America. Uh, again, a lot of reading to do there. And my, as an author, I created an author page called, a page called Jarl Jensen. And I have some blogs there, some videos there. I've got some podcasts I can uh, listen to, like this one. And uh, I'm also writing uh, two more books. One is um, is a prequel to Optimizing America, and another one is called The Big Solution, where I completely write out and explain all of these concepts and why it's screwing up the world and so on, so that we can get a complete picture and um, move on to the next level of uh, next stage of humanity. This has, been a, you know, this has been a fun one. Thanks for coming on, y'all. You're welcome. I hope uh, we get some listeners. Oh, we definitely have some listeners. And guys, hopefully you guys have enjoyed this as well. If you have, review on Apple Podcast or wherever would go quite a long way in helping us grow and get more awesome guests like Jarl. And say hey to Jarl. If this is something that you found beneficial, check out his books, check out his talks, and all of that good stuff. We'll have links in the show notes, disruptors.fm. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you, Jarl, again. Thank, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Cheers, guys. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.